0: going to read biggish section of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now first of all, uh, a disclaimer. We've been going through 1 Timothy, the book, for a little while. When I've been preaching, we've been looking at 1 Timothy 5. And when you choose to do that, when you choose to go work your way through an entire book, you can't just choose, for reasons of awkwardness or otherwise, to skip over a section. You know you're going to look at absolutely everything. I'd just like you to bear that in mind before I read the passage, okay? Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. You can look at the screen uh, on the wall there, uh, the scriptures that we that we look at. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, we were there a, a couple of weeks ago as well. It's all looking at, the whole chapter's looking at uh, healthy relationships in the life of a New Testament church. Uh, so that the chapter kicks off with some general... Uh, instructions and encouragements about relating to older men, younger men, older women, younger women in God's family. Uh, it moves on, we looked last time we were here um, at how to relate to those who are particularly in need and so we looked at uh, all the verses to do with uh, how to treat widows, uh, those who were in massive need in the life of the church in the first century and now we are going re- to read from verse 17 through to the end of the chapter. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So so if the buckets could just be passed around again. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. (laughs) Back to the word. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation brought against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty, in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others keep yourselves pure stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses the sins of some men are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them the sins of others trail behind them in the same way good deeds are obvious and even those that are not cannot be hidden now recently we made the discovery as a family Big bags of crisps, that's not a massive discovery in itself, but you know that there are now big bags of crisps, I won't mention the brand, which have two different flavors of crisp in the same bag. Let me just clarify this. I can see like shock of, on people's face around the room. So it's like breaking birthday party etiquette, isn't it, when like two different flavors were put in the same bowl? That's just not right, is it? You could Get a nice, nasty shock. So to clarify, in one bag, crisps of two different flavors. So you don't, when, you're, when you're taking a brave step, when you put your hand in the bag and reach you don't know if that crisp is going to be spicy chicken, for example, or it might be sour cream, and you just don't know. Or you could get both at the same time and have the kind of collision of flavors. Uh, in your mouth. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a slightly rigid thinker and I need to become more progressive. That just seems wrong to me. Surely, when you're making a decision about what flavor of crisp you would like to eat, you kind of know you're going to have to make a choice and you're going to go with it. I want sizzling barbecue. I don't want lime chutney or whatever. I don't know. But now you can have that shock. Sometimes... Flavors can be combined. I think it's just a mistake. Sometimes it happens in the, in the beverage world as well. Let me just give you an example where things are put together and you're just not sure whether they should be. Fruit, tea. <laughs> Fruit, that sounds promising, doesn't it? And then tea. I quite like tea. Put them together and what do you get? Oh. There will be refreshments later on, and we probably do have some fruit teas available. And sometimes, now you might, I might not be, uh, you might not be in agreement with me on this one, but it also happens with, uh, with, with mocha, like for the ultimately indecisive. Who here likes coffee? Okay, I see plenty of hands. Who here likes hot chocolate? I also see lots of hands. Who here likes mocha? Okay. More hands than I was expecting. Fair enough. I take it all back. For me, I'm just thinking, well, why, why would you do that? Why, why would you combine? If you know you want coffee, go for coffee. If you, why kind of dilute them and mix them together? I just haven't understood that. If you can persuade me later, I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try and pluck up the courage to have um uh, a mocker but like I say maybe I am just slightly too rigid a thinker and actually some very different flavors can be kind of combined uh, married together and that's important so uh, I know that great British Bake off is not like everyone's preferred viewing habit you know it's a kind of cultural reference that not everyone's going to appreciate but it has just started again hasn't it and uh, we're watching in the baking tent people combining flavors and you, you hear the descriptions beforehand, you think, that just sounds really odd. But this showstopper or signature bake will be brought to the judges, and Paul, what's-his-name, will be there. <laughs> with the other presenters, I can't remember their names either. And he give, when he takes a taste, it, it will look amazing. He takes a taste, and he doesn't give anything away to start with, does he? Just, and he could say, that's really badly baked, it's horrible, the flavours are clashing all over the place. I saw it once the other day where he just put out his hand for the handshake, like the, the ultimate congratulations to a baker for having combined, combined flavors. And maybe we're thinking you know, they don't quite go together, but seeing they do, and that's important. Right here in this passage, and often actually in the Bible, there's a combination of flavors that we wouldn't put together necessarily. Sometimes what we like for the sake of a simple life, is just to be able to focus on just this one flavor. Don't mix it up for me, just give me one. And we may have a preference one way or the other. There might be some bits of scripture we think, well, I, I don't like the implications, I don't like the flavor of that, I'm just going to focus over here. Sometimes in, in the same passage, there are different flavors. And we've had that already when we've looked at uh, relating in the life of the church. We've looked at uh, how to uh, honor and provide for uh, widows. And we saw when we were there, the passage in, in that regard, uh, what came through was just the, the, the primary place of compassion, of caring for those in need. Really, really important flavor. At the same time, even in the same passage, you see there's, some, there's other flavors coming through that are equally important. It doesn't mean that we don't care. It means that part of caring is also being wise. Really caring and really thinking about what's the best way of helping. Not just jumping to a one-size-fits-all in every single situation, but, uh, but exercising discernment as well. In this passage about a church relating to its elders, we're gonna see a few flavors that are important and that go together. And that the, a New Testament church or a church today in 21st century written, seeking to build to New Testament values, uh, needs to have regard for all these different flavors. Uh, First of all, here's just a couple of reminders uh, about what we've seen in the letter so far. A few things to bear in mind before we turn to those particular flavors. First of all, if you like a key verse in the whole book, 1 Timothy chapter 3, actually two verses, uh, verse 14 in 1 Timothy 3. Paul writes to Timothy, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So because Paul is delayed, he's writing this letter, and he's writing this letter to Timothy to help uh, spell out, so that people might know how to conduct themselves in what? in God's household, which is the church of the living God. This is not just applying to Timothy's day. It's not just applying to the church in Ephesus, this massive city which had a massive church, um, which had encountered problems. These things have, have relevance for us. And Paul's understanding of what it means to be church is that we are God's household, God's family. There are lots of ways in which church could be understood. Um, It can be thought that church is just a building and therefore perhaps if church is just a building, church is also just the meeting that you turn up to um, on a Sunday. Or that church is a charity or church is, it may just be thought in terms of being like a business really with a chain of command and people in different positions and so on. No, no, putting all of that aside fundamentally at its very foundation, the very essence of what it means to be a church is that we are gods and that we are his family. We are a household. So when we're thinking about relating to one another and what it means to belong, that's what's to shape us. It just so happens that often a church has a building. It just happens that we meet together and that's important. That's not all that we're about, just a Sunday gathering. It just so happens that we're a registered charity, but that doesn't shape exactly who we are. Yes, we're uh, compliant with the law and so on, but we're not a community of law, not a community that's just built on worldly principles and laws. We're a community that's built on God's grace and God's word, and this understanding of grace and receiving the good news in Jesus means we see ourselves as family, and therefore God's church is to be highly relational, connected, where where people uh, know one another. It's not, this is what actually the Holy Spirit wants to do it speaks in, in Ephesians of the, of the bond of peace from the Holy Spirit maintaining the bond of peace the bond of unity that comes about by the Spirit's activity the Holy Spirit comes into our lives by virtue of receiving the good news in Jesus and what does he do? he knits people together into a family that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do interestingly what Dave was sharing about that, the picture of the leaf with the waxy layer sometimes things can happen in our lives personally, or in a church, that introduces this waxy layer. The Holy Spirit wants to bring a connection between people, but, but relationships have become at arm's length, have become very formal or very official, or just not there at all. That can happen. If God, by his Holy Spirit, wants to bring people together into a family where people are genuinely connected in good relationship, honoring one another, encouraging one another, knowing one another, being able to stand with one another, being able to pray for one another, knowing the highs and knowing the lows of what's going on in each other's lives, if that's what God wants to bring about, you know that it will be contested by an enemy who wants to separate people out. And bring a cold, formal religious way of doing church life that isolates people and can make sometimes people uh, make them suspicious or wary or guarded and perhaps because of pain that's been caused so that's the one of the keys to this letter is seeing church as God's family and actually it's represented very much in the way that Paul writes. He's not writing to uh, just a business associate. Uh, When he he writes to Timothy, any number of times, I'll just give you a few examples. 1 Timothy 1 verse 2, he says, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Right there from the outset, we know there is a depth to relationship here. There is a closeness between uh, these men that can't just be described in business terms. It's not that just Timothy submitted his CV to Paul Ministries International. and thought, Oh yeah, here's a talented guy. Here's a guy with some gifts. I could use him. Um, it's, not, it's not like that. They have a heart relationship. They have a close relationship. So Paul knows him he says in chapter 1, verse 18, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you might fight the good fight. He knows him. He knows the prophecies that have been brought. He knows the call of God on his life. He knows his backstory. You could read into 2 Timothy and he says he knows his family background. He knows his mum and his Grandmother, he he knows where he's come from, he knows uh, who he is, he knows his his gifts, and he knows his temperament, his personality, and he knows what Timothy needs to hear. So, in chapter four of one Timothy, and and verse twelve, he says, "There, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers." On he goes. He knows that something in Timothy's kind of personal makeup could mean that he is. Uh, he's intimidated and somehow allows people to look uh, look down on him he'll go on to say same chapter verse 14 do not neglect your gift which has given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you he can write in uh, in 2 Timothy and in uh, chapter 3 verse 10 you however know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. You can say, you know all about that. You know all about my way of life. You know all about my, my high points. And you also know about all the rubbish I've had to go through as well. You, you know that. I know each other. And so you think if if that's the quality of relationship between Paul and Timothy, you could reckon that that quality of relationship, that way of relating, would flavor the churches that they started and nurtured. That that would be part of what it was like to be in a church that Paul got started in the first place. That's, that's relational. There's not this kind of waxy layer, a shiny veneer, but don't ask me anything personal. It's relational. It was the same with Jesus, with his disciples, gathering this unlikely kind of posse from all sorts of different backgrounds. He could give them nicknames. You could say, well, your name's Simon, but I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you Rocky. Or he could say to a couple of brothers, I'm going to, you're sons of thunder. You could imagine there's, there's, there's relationship amongst them. You could look at the sorts of things that Jesus said to his disciples and it could be quite firm, it could be quite strong. But on this basis of real relationship, and you see the same thing here in 1 Timothy, Paul writes some things that are really strong. I charge you. I urge you, stay there. I give you this command. In keeping with the prophecies once made about you you can write some strong stuff but it's on the basis of a profound relationship and we need to keep that flavor in mind when we're thinking not just about how to relate to elders or people in leadership but right across the whole church that it's highly relational that we need to be in a family and if you're looking for a church, or if you're about to leave Sheffield and go and find one elsewhere, uh, if you're at uh, that stage of life, uh, going to university or whatever, as, as Ben was saying earlier on, just get stuck in. Find a church you can call family. Now, that might mean trying a few, but don't like, leave it to like, uh, beyond Christmas to actually make a decision you might not be making a decision today but don't leave it for a long time because it's just possible to drift and kind of find relationship and identity outside of God's purposes and, and trip up but no, God's got profound purposes for you and he wants you, he wants you to be knitted in he wants you to think yes can I agree with the doctrine that's being taught can, can I kind of uh, say my amen to what's being taught here but also can i can i see health can i see myself kind of relating and 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 being known and knowing the people who are part of this congregation we need to be in that kind of community however the back the backdrop here in 1 Timothy unfortunately holding out the vision, church as family. Unfortunately, the backdrop is where church has gone really badly wrong, where it's gone sour. That's why Timothy has to stay put. That's why Paul has to write this letter, because in this massive church that probably was meeting in many locations, many different places right across uh, the fifth largest city in the ancient world in Ephesus, Many leaders in that church, many of its elders, had drifted into severe error. We're not talking about innocent mistakes, one-offs, mistakes made in good faith. We're talking about leaders who in a sustained and deliberate way, it says elsewhere, both in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, uh, have rejected faith, and have rejected a good conscience, and have rejected the truth. And their their teaching is described like, it's like gangrene. It can spread like gangrene. Well, well, gangrene is just death. Their teaching is like death, saying that the resurrection has, has already happened. They have shipwrecked their own faith, And they are destroying the faith of others. So in Ephesus, there's this church, which now has just become a a place not of grace and of acceptance and of sound, healthy truth. But it's become a place of controversy and argument and discord and pain. So... Paul's not writing into a vacuum. Now, it would be great to say, isn't that interesting, historically? Historically, that was the challenges that were going on in the first century. Can you imagine? Can you imagine church life ever going wrong? And everyone who's been around City Church for a while will say, no, we can't imagine that at all. Um, well, this is, for us, personally, this, this doesn't kind of speak into just a vacuum. This is not talking about just things in abstract. There are people in that church who have been profoundly hurt by what's happened. They have entrusted their lives to the elders of the church. They've submitted to teaching and now they're finding out that they've been led astray. The people who are supposed to be protecting them, the elders of the flock have led them astray and led them into hurt and Uh, confusion, and Timothy has been sent to deal with the fallout. We know already that Hymenaeus and Alexander, two primary uh, ringleaders, if you like, were likely to have been elders in that church who have been thrown out. We could well imagine that there are some other elders who have stepped down or are being stepped down, and new ones are in the process of being appointed, all in an atmosphere and an environment of pain. People were hurting. So it would be lovely to say, we've never heard of that happening. But this will have affected many people in the room. Maybe for, for you, it may be in, the, in respect of having been part of a church where you've submitted to the, to the authority and to the leaders of those church, churches. Churches may in, in another sphere, in, in family life, or, or in business or in employment. Um, you've been you've been under a, a leadership which has damaged you, or damaged the the church, or damaged the uh, the organisation. You've put your trust in a leader. You received them. You wanted to honour them and respect them, and you received their teaching. But then you realise actually you've been led astray. Perhaps you've been lied to, and. Uh, controlled or, uh, or bullied, or that the teaching was great, the teaching was fine. You were discipled, and you, you were kind of given lots of good uh, principles for living and understanding the gospel and putting it into practice in life, and you realize that the person who taught you hasn't been following that themselves. Affairs, gambling, alcohol abuse, things in hidden, coming into the light and, and Paul is saying here some the sins of some men are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them the sins of others trail behind them they don't become evident straight away but they come to light later on so it's all it's into that environment it's into that context that Paul is speaking and it's possible then if that's been the experienced elsewhere if that's part of our story personally going back some years uh, that we can kind of be led to one or, or another unhelpful tendency. It could be, well, I've been hurt before, to now, with this waxy layer, I'm just going to be, I'm wary. I'm, I'm going to protect myself. I'll go along, I'll listen, but I'm, I'm, I'm guarded. My, my defences are up. How do I know I can trust them? How do I know I can really rely? Always uh, oh, just a bit, a bit wary. That's understandable, but it's not ideal, is it? For that suspicion to mean that really, actually, relationships need to be at arm's length. I don't really know if people can be trusted. And, and actually, that can have an effect for church leaders who are doing a good job, or at least trying to. Um, on the receiving end of. Uh, of suspicion, I can remember growing up in a, in a great Anglican church, which I was grateful, and I can remember the guy there, uh, the vicar, and I have a memory, this is going back a few years as well, but I, can have a, I have a memory of an evening service, so the a morning service, evening service, and him standing up and speaking to the congregation with tears in his eyes, appealing that the criticism stop and that unity had a chance. He wasn't bullying. He wasn't teaching error. He wasn't uh, harsh. He wasn't given to alcohol. You know, it wasn't that he was uh, going wrong in some way, I don't think. But he was kind of leading a church which just had their arms folded, kind of metaphorically speaking. We don't quite trust you. You've really got to prove yourself. Sometimes that can happen in the life of the church. Happened, uh, I can remember actually someone in that church. Uh, doing some of the criticising and saying of the vicar, it's like he wants a finger in every pie, as if, as if boo-hoo, that he should ever meddle in different areas of church life. Can I think, well, he's the vicar. This is the church that he leads. Surely it stands to reason that he'd want to bring a godly influence and direction into every and every every and any area of church life but this kind of defense mechanism we don't trust him we don't like him maybe he's going to change things around here we're not sure about that chatting to someone recently from another church in another place describing their own church and saying well we've got this new guy in the old guy the the previous leader was great so personable real great gifted guy with wonderful people skills Um, got this new guy and to be honest he's just not quite quite the same I just thought maybe I was developing too much of an idea in mind of what was happening. Sometimes a new guy can come in to start leading a church and just like in the first month ring every possible change and then be surprised when people are like a bit taken aback. But in this scenario, I just got the impression, yeah, he's not sinned. The problem is he's just a bit different. He's got a different personality and perhaps a different mix of gifts. And there's a church kind of saying, or maybe there's a few individuals in the church saying, yeah, but you're not like the old guy, sorry. So we'll keep you at arms length. Kind of, the enemy will do whatever he can to kind of separate a people from their leaders in the context of church. Do whatever he will, exploit any pain or difficulty he possibly can on either direction to, to isolate leaders and isolate people. So, that you've got like an uneasy relationship between shepherd and their sheep, um, which we have to be mindful of. There can be that just suspicion that like permeates, maybe off the back of genuine pain and hurt. We've got to be aware of it still. The other direction sometimes things can go is a, is a misplaced or misguided loyalty. This is what happens when the church leader is so esteemed because of gift. Because how uh, charismatic a speaker he might be, and for for kind of good performance, really got results. The church has grown; things are going great. Got an amazing social media profile, Um, and then something comes to light, and concerns start to grow about again not just innocent one-off mistakes in good faith, but a pattern. Of seriously ungodly behavior. You can find actually sometimes an investigation's done, but the the conclusion's really already been decided on. We just got to work out how we exonerate him, because we can't consider church life without him. So this must all have been a misunderstanding. A few interviews, a bit of a process unfolds, but uh nothing's really done about it or the problems kept under wraps. And sometimes even hear of a, heard of a horror of a situation once where the, the problems, the profound uh, kind of betrayal and problem behaviour in a, in a leader of a church had come to light and a large proportion of the church ineffectively said, but we don't mind. I think it's like double defeat. The leader's fallen, and the people are happy with that. You know, oh, that, well, that shouldn't happen either. So what are we to do? How, how are we to understand? This passage brings, like I say, this combination of flavors, and we need to, we need to heed both of them. We need to hear, heed all of them. In a the context of believing for New Testament church life to be God's family, God's People, that sense of real closeness and, uh, and relationship and love and support. In that context, relating to leaders, how do we do it? In this way, firstly, with, with double honor. This mention of, of double honor. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor. Honor. That word, honour, is actually a key word through this chapter because it's slightly obscured by the NIV, but we're told earlier on to honour widows. Honour widows who are truly in need. Um, and here we have this, this honour mentioned in regard of, of leaders, of elders, and it's going to say at the beginning of chapter 6 about uh, those under the yoke of slavery honouring their, their masters. It says something slightly different, but the word is uh, is the same, the sense of honour. And this is a key, uh, a key thing for the whole church. It's not just in regard of a few particular groups. I love the way that the, the ESV puts Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour. It's a lovely way to put it. In other words, bouncing around healthy New Testament church are a people who are seeking the opportunity to to publicly appreciate other people um, and honour them. It's not just talking about leaders, but something right across the board in, in the life of the church. These to be qualified in a few ways here. Uh, because there's a difference between showing honour, that's the focus here, showing honour to other people and seeking honour for ourselves. So Jesus had some fairly strong words in his time for people who were evidently seeking honor he went to a party he went to the pharisee's house and he just observed he watched where people sat and he said he could see that people wanted to sit in the places of honor that's where they put themselves what does jesus say now don't don't put yourself there sit yourself kind of at the bottom of the table allow other people to honor you if they want to but you're not seeking it for yourselves and he could speak about the scribes. Or, and he said, of the, you know, beware the scribes. They love to walk around in flowing robes. They, they like the seats of honour. They like the places of honour in the synagogue. They like to make a, a lengthy show of their prayers. Oh, by the way, they also devour widows' houses. I think, beware of them. So beware seeking honour for ourselves. That is a good good principle sometimes people can be attracted to positions of leadership because they want the honor that might be associated uh, with it well that's clearly not the way that Jesus led us that wouldn't be Jesus model at all so the focus here is on showing honor not on seeking it and let's just clear up what double honor means it doesn't mean double salary doesn't mean uh double pay it means appropriate financial support and respect. I think that's the, that's the double. Uh, it, it wouldn't make sense otherwise. I mean, double what? Double what you were giving to the widows, double what you were giving to the elders who don't preach, double, double what? It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be obvious even what it, what it meant. And in chapter 6, uh, Paul's going to continue to write about the, the problem of greed. The problem of greed has come about because of the false teachers. Maybe they were overemphasizing the honor bit. And what actually is manifesting is just this, uh, this greedy love of money. And so Paul has to write to, uh, to confront that. Um, it's qualified in a couple of ways. It's not just honor for the position, but for directing the affairs of the church well. It's honor for hard work. Um, not just for being in a a position. And this this honor also involves protection. Protecting leaders from unwarranted uh, accusations. It says here, those uh, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Again, that's not actually saying anything new. This is a principle spelt out in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. For anybody. Don't convict somebody unless there are two or three witnesses. Uh, and, and Jesus affirms that in the New, New Testament, and we see it here uh, as well. I guess the basis is this that if someone is doing a great work for God, taking a stand and speaking the truth of the gospel, uh, they're likely to be opposed, uh, not just admired. Uh, and there'll be those who Uh, who want to drag them into uh, disrepute with accusations that aren't founded. So hence the the instruction, don't entertain an accusation unless it's brought by more than one person. Sometimes people can say, well, I have this accusation and lots of other people have said it as well. What other people? Likely, that's just a personal opinion trying to be given more weight. Um, It's okay to kind of represent things, but just call it what it is. Uh, so, so there it is, this sense of double honour. Now, if that was the only flavour in the passage, things could go a little bit awry. And sometimes in the life of churches, they, they do. The, the gold-plated uh, limousine is just outside. The, the, the really special treatment, a, a, a culture of honour develops, which is perhaps just a little bit um, unhelpful. And even that actually can bring a distance between people. And there's kind of like a cringing way of, of showing honour. Actually, it separates people out. It, um, it, placing people on a pedestal doesn't help good, healthy relationship. Family, you get away with nicknames, or certainly first names. Um, and that's to be the, the atmosphere of the church. There's also this other flavour, which I'm going to call greater strictness or stricter judgment. You won't see those words directly in this passage but I could just take you to James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers my brothers because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So here is another flavor to introduce and this uh, has some bearing on the passage as it unfolds in one Timothy, there's this protection, don't even entertain an accusation unless it's brought by more than one person, but verse 20, when there are accusations that are brought by more than one person and it's substantiated, do this, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others, the other elders, the whole church, probably both, that the others may take warning. Then get verse 21. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Paul understands that in our humanity, even as we're seeking to be this uh, New Testament family church, if you like, that if it was ever necessary, To publicly rebuke an elder, we might want to wriggle out of it. We might find a reason just to keep it private, to hush it up. This happens all the time. That it's not brought out into the light. It's not dealt with. Actually, the sin has opportunity to grow. The the warning uh, doesn't get heeded. And the church, and therefore the gospel, Uh, falls into disrepute as a result. Have you heard about this leader? Have you heard about that situation? And uh, have you heard about the double standards of that movement or whatever? You think, oh, the the damage that is done. So in putting this passage together, it couldn't just be talking about double honour. It needs to also have this note of warning. An elder has been publicly honoured by hands being laid on to set this person apart for the ministry of leading and teaching a church so if the honour is public the rebuke is public as well for the sake of the church what that shows us is that the health and reputation of the church and the gospel matters more than its leaders the situation uh, quite quite recently in a very large church in the States, where very problem behavior of a very well-known Christian leader has come to light. He has had to step down. And actually, because uh, the investigation in that church that was conducted afterwards was not conducted very well, all those at a certain level of leadership in a church of multiple thousands of people have also all stepped down in acknowledging we didn't investigate this properly. We just backed up this much beloved leader of ours and we never gave proper attention uh, to, to the accusations and what was being witnessed. And you think, what the, the damage that's done potentially, well, not potentially, it just is. The damage that is done when that happens. So I think that should show us that being a community of grace, being a family of God, it's not just kind of like happy, flippant, make-believe. It really is important. Something's profoundly at stake, and we have to be prepared uh, to guard it and to protect it and to honour God. That's what it says here. So that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God. This passage, amongst all, for all of us, should bring about a holy fear that this this is not our church this is not my church or Richard's church this is God's church and if anybody messes with the church in those kind of profound ways they're messing with God and God's honor matters more than any single person's position or reputation That is what we should be believing for. We could, chew, we could kind of think, I want one flavor and I don't really want the other. Maybe for some of us, actually, we've been hurt. We don't really want the double on a bit. We don't, we don't want the relationship bit. We, we just think, yeah, well, I'm wary because I've seen what can go wrong. Let me tell you about it sometime because of my experience of what I've seen, and what I've been a part of. I'm not going to ask a show of hands, but if I did ask for a show of hands, have you been part of a church that's encountered major difficulties in leadership? Have you been part of a church where there's been a split? Have you been part of a church uh, that's encountered some kind of moral scandal in its midst? Have you been part of a church where the person discipling you has stumbled into major sin? I'm not asking for hands, it's just it's there, isn't it? And we need to we need to make sure that we're not therefore just thinking I can't be done with church or I can't be done with what the New Testament spells out. I'll just settle for something much less than God's glorious vision for what New Testament should be. We have an enemy who would like to exploit every pain, every suspicion, every, uh, every problem in order to create distance. We have to commit ourselves to God, his plans, his grace, and actually his holiness as well, in Jesus' name.